Welcome back to the John Clay Podcast. I'm John Clay, sports columnist with the Lexington Arrow Leader and Kentucky.com. It is Thursday, November 17th. 2022. And on today's podcast, we're going to preview Saturday's Kentucky-Georgia football game at Kroger Field. It's a 3.30 kickoff on CBS. Georgia comes into the game as the number one ranked team in the country, both in the AP Bowl and the college football playoff rankings. The Bulldogs, the defending national champions, they're 10-0. and They've already clinched the SEC East title where they will play LSU in the SEC championship game in Atlanta. Kentucky comes into the game 6-4. and four. They're 3-4 and four in the SEC after that 24-21 loss last week to Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt snapped a 26-game conference losing streak when they defeated Kentucky. It was Vandy's first SEC road win since 2018. A really tough loss for Mark Stoops' team. It'll be interesting to see how they bounce back this week against the Bulldogs. And to help me preview the game, I talked with Chip Towers of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about Georgia coming into this game. And to talk about Kentucky, I talked with my good friend and colleague at the Herald-Leader and Kentucky.com, John Hale, the UK football beat writer. So let's not waste any time. Let's get right to it. First, you'll hear Chip Chip Towers of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and then after that, John Hale of Kentucky.com and the Lexington Herald-Leader. Okay, back with my guest, Chip Towers, longtime with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, been following, covering, following, editing stories about it, you name it, about Georgia athletics the way back in, to the mid-1980s. How's it going, Chip? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, going, it's going fantastic. I, I get asked all the time about how long have I been covering the dogs, and you know, it depends on your definition of covering. <laughs> right. I, I, let's just say I've been, uh, I've been well aware of that program since I actually attended school there in the mid-80s. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, what about this current Georgia football team, Chip? National champions last year, but lost so many guys on defense, five first-round draft picks off the defense. I think Georgia had like 15 players overall taken in the draft. You knew they were going to be good this year, but have they been even a little better than you expected, or you just expect them to pick right up where they left off last year? No, I, yeah, yeah, I've, I've definitely been surprised by this, John. I, uh, uh, and just for all the reasons that you uh, uh, touched on there, I mean, yeah, there were, there were 15 players drafted off of this team, eight of them on the defensive side of the ball, uh, you know, five of those eight defensive players in the first rounds. And, and all of that is historic, right? There's never been more players drafted, never been more defensive players drafted, I think, Something like some obscure thing, like never been more players in the first three rounds, or something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I thought they might struggle a little on defense this year, and then, but, but yet here we sit. You know, going into week twelve of the season, Georgia's second in the nation in um, you know scoring defense, top five in in all defensive categories. That's been the surprise for me. To a lesser extent is what they're doing on offense. I really thought they were going to be good on offense. And so, you know, my narrative, my expected narrative coming in the season was Georgia may have to outscore some people like, you know, some of these other teams have been doing in recent years this year as opposed to the other way. So I thought they'd be good. But, you know, quite honestly, I you know, I certainly didn't expect them to be heading into week 12 uh, undefeated, winning by the margins they are, and, you know, just – consensus number one in every respect. Let, let, let's start with the offense and start with the 
the guy, the quarterback, uh, Brad White, UK's defensive coordinator yesterday, was talking about said he's a little surprised that Stetson Bennett hasn't got more hype for the Heisman because he said, you know, and and Kentucky played Hendon Hooker earlier in the year, and he said, I, obviously Hooker's having a great season, but he said he's not sure anybody has been as effective at quarterback as Stetson Bennett is right now for Georgia. Just what what about the season he's having? Well, it's it, it's really incredible, and you know, it's it. It's understandable he's not really in the Heisman discussion, but we did this week move to uh, to fifth in the uh, in the uh, ESPN's rankings for the Heisman. Uh, and and you know early in the year he came out of the gate blazing when Georgia beats Oregon forty nine to three to open the season, and he just had a huge game that day. I, I, you know maybe one incompletion or something ridiculous like that. Um, but, you know, he cooled off, and, and he doesn't have a ton of touchdowns or touchdown passes. He's actually uh, run for seven touchdowns himself, which is way up for his career. So he's running the ball a little bit more uh, more often. But, yeah, you know, it's really the, the inside football people who have the most, like Brad White, who have the most respect for Stetson Bennett. He doesn't get a ton of respect across the board, even from his own fan base right. sometimes. Uh, there's a yeah there's a there's a portion of georgia fans who still still don't really believe in stetson which is which is crazy when you think about it but his skill uh primarily the the thing this year like he got it done for georgia last year and georgia got it done largely because of the great defense but this year todd monk and the offensive coordinator has been sort of able to build georgia's offense around stetson's bennett stetson bennett's specific skill set and you know that has been a lot of rpo a lot of role um you know his his explosive numbers are, are better than people give him credit for and um it, you sit there and look at it now he's second in the sec in passing yards that like georgia's throwing it around a lot not not the traditional man ball that uh we're, we're so used to seeing georgia play so he's He's pulling all the levers and, and, and playing great. He's a little bit reminds me a little of Baker Mayfield in the standpoint of, you know, Georgia's turned the ball over. He's turned the ball over probably more than Georgia would like. But, you know, he's that type. He's got that type of moxie that, you know, he thinks he can make uh, every play and every once in a while it gets him in trouble, but way less often than not. Is, is there is there one guy on offense that's really kind of surprised you, really stepped up, that maybe you weren't expecting a whole lot from this year? Well, Darnell Washington's been, been the the biggest difference for Georgia, I would say. So you knew you had a great tight end in Brock Bowers, you know, who had uh, over 800 yards receiving as a freshman last year. He is such a freak from the standpoint point of being 6'4", 230, and and, and – Literally, I mean, I, I think he's a sub four five guy. He's really fast, really special. And when you got somebody that big and that fast uh, who can also block, it's it you know it puts a defense in constant conflict. Add to that, Darnell Washington, who's been here, but I mean, he's six foot seven, two hundred and seventy pounds, and he has come light years as a pass receiver. I was shocked to find out last week his touchdown was the first one for the he scored a touchdown against Mississippi State. It was the first one this year, but he's had a uh highlight reel uh of catches and runs and he's been at several he likes to uh hurdle people, which at six foot seven isn't hard. Um uh, 
with uh, with defensive backs. Uh, you know, he's so big; they're always going to chop his legs, and and he's on. He's wise to that, and has been leaping over people. So that's been uh, a real big surprise. The other one is Lab McConkey. Now, Lab McConkey was really good last year. Um, you know, a, a, a relatively small guy and a, a, a very under the radar recruit, uh, you know, low three star that Georgia got out of uh, uh, the Northwest Georgia area, which is not known for its for really having great football. Lab McConkey had 31 catches last year, but he leads the team by a bunch. And, you know, last week had, uh, um, you know, a 70 yard and 40 yard touchdown scores, uh, which has been. Uh, in keeping with him all year. So Lab McConkey's been a surprise offensively. Okay, let's flip over to defense. What about our defense? You've been talking about all the people that, you know, that they lost, all the draft choices and so forth, and here they are, number two in scoring defense, way up there in total defense, the other categories. Anybody on the defensive side who's really stepped up that maybe we didn't know a whole lot about it or uh, has been kind of a surprise for him? Well, we knew about them, but they were so young, right? So the inside linebackers, you know, last year you had Nicobe Dean, uh, Quay Walker, and and uh, Channing Tindall, and all three of those guys were drafted. Uh, Quay Walker went the first round, Nicobe Dean in the second, and people were surprised he lasted that long. All of them are starting in the NFL right now. So you take three guys, you had a three-man rotation there at your two inside linebacker spots, and they were just lights out last year. And you replaced them this year, um, you know, with with a, a, a sophomore and uh, Jamon Dumas Johnson. They call him Pop. He wears number 10, and uh, the pop, uh, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with being old, I promise you. <laughs> they call him pop because he brings the pop. And uh, Smile Munden, now that guy is, uh, you know, the thing that – so it's Kirby's recruiting, right? I mean, it's not it's not smoke and mirrors here. All of these guys that, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you about, most of them came with five-star ratings. I mean, uh, uh, pop was a four-star out of uh, Maryland, uh, 6'1", 245, sophomore, um, Smile Munden was a five star. You know, I would, I, he, I think he might have been the number one player in Georgia when he signed uh, six foot three, 220 sophomore, and he can fly. And probably where they've, uh, uh, you know, gotten kind of a surprise, they have a, a couple of backups in there who are uh, juniors, third year players who have been uh, injury prone before this season, but they've managed to stay healthy. So you got kind of gritty. Uh, veteran guys uh, that have been around playing behind them, so they got a good little rotation going there. And obviously up front, so the 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 story on Georgia's defense right now is Jalen Carter is back. The amazing part of that, Jalen Carter, a preseason All American, uh, you know, was was great on last year's team, and all those guys, Jordan Davis and and uh, uh, the other three, you know, Trevon, uh, Trayvon Walker. Uh, and, and Devontae White, they all said Jalen Carter's better than the three of us. Look out for him. But he was he literally got hurt on the first play of the Oregon game and has kind of been out most of the year. He came back against Florida. He's played three games uh, in a row, and he has been devastating, unblockable. He's healthy now, uh, right in the middle of Georgia's defense. And in the meantime, while he was out, um, you had a couple of, uh, you know, I started calling them young guys, but they're not really young. When you talk about Zion Logue and and Nazir Stackhouse, they're they're kind of in that 
forgot about area of, of, of guys who were re highly recruited, but then they were behind those all-stars and you didn't really see much of them the last two seasons. And now all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, those guys are pretty good too. And they've, they've really developed in Jalen Carter's absence. So strong in the middle where I expected him to be weak. Okay, Chip, we've come to the part of the podcast where I usually ask my guests, okay, what are the keys to Saturday's game? But Georgia's a 22-and-a-half-point favorite. Mark Stoops has never beaten Georgia. Georgia's number one in the country. I'm going to guess that Georgia's keys just to keep on doing what they've been doing. Would that be correct? Well, I mean, kind of, you know, so I <laughs> I get what Kirby's saying, you know, when he's talking. So you've probably heard him. I mean, he has just been, you know, firing up the warning players right and left. He likes Mark Stoops. He loves the way they play. You know, they're tough and physical uh, and all that kind of stuff. So, and he's, you know, I mean, he is more than ever on guard against a slip-up, you know, because Georgia, they've already clinched the East. They know they're going to be in the SEC championship game as a number one team. Unless they really throw up on their shoes, you know, they're going to be in the playoff. So, he's keeping them focused and uh but there if there's one bugaboo for this team it's what i talked about with stats they get a little sloppy with the ball and kind of conversely they haven't created a ton of turnovers like not as many as they they usually do and so they've had four games john that they've lost the uh, uh turnover margin battle and you know usually that's a huge red flag uh yet they've won all those games except one by double figures. I mean, and they weren't, none of them were really close. Um, so that's how good they are, but you know, it's going to be freezing cold there at Kroger field, you know, that makes football hard, um, you know, crazy things happen. So I would say, you know, taking care of the football is really the number one, um, key for Georgia to be able to, to win on Saturday. Well, it's a 3.30 game on CBS, 3.30 kickoff there at Kroger Field. Uh, Chip, remind the listeners how they can follow you on Twitter and where they can find your work uh, online leading up to and during and after the game. Yeah, you can you can find all my work linked and probably more than my thoughts, more of my thoughts than you care to know at, at <laughs> on, on Twitter. I, I have a blue check now and have not uh, – have not paid for it, but uh, <laughs> you either. can follow us there at AJC.com. We run, uh, me and many others write about the dogs. Oh, yeah. Uh, AJC, they do a great job uh, covering sports in general, but especially Georgia, all Georgia athletes, especially Georgia football. Chip, look forward to seeing you on Saturday. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, anytime for you. Anything for you, John Clay. Okay, welcome into the podcast, my friend and colleague, UK football beat writer for the Herald Leader in Kentucky.com, John Hale. How's it going, John? It's good. How are you? I am good. Kentucky and Georgia on Saturday, 3.30 game. It's a CBS game. Kentucky coming off that, uh, uh, I, have, I have no other way to put it, but embarrassing loss to Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt breaking a 26-game conference losing streak. It was Vandy's first SEC road win since 2018. Uh the, to the big topic of conversation after that game, even though the defense, we were talking about this yesterday at the uh, football uh, interviews, the defense you know, gave up over 400 yards, a ton of yards rushing, but all anybody's talking about is the continued offensive problems with Rich Scangarello. Uh, I was up in Indy for the, game on, for the basketball game on Tuesday, so didn't get to go to the football interviews. How was Rich on Tuesday when, when you guys talked to him? He was 
pretty normal. I mean, I, I think you could, there was definitely a, a little bit of a longer um, briefing session between him and the, the media relations people walking up to the podium uh, than maybe normal, I'm sure, with all the conversations. But he was his, his self. I mean, he gave some pretty introspective answers about some of the things that have gone wrong. I asked him, for instance, you know, on media day, you talked about you thought you could scheme around any sort of offensive line issues, especially a tackle with protection. And clearly hasn't happened. Why is that? And he was like very blunt about, yeah, it's been way harder than I thought. Because when you have to put those things you do to scheme around on tape, you know, 15 to 20 plays every game, as opposed to doing it for, you know, five or six every two or three games when you face a really good pass rusher, you know, teams figure out what you're doing and, and they can counter that. So, you know, he had some answers like that. I, I will say that he said some of the same things he said all season and I'm sure don't uh, get fans very excited. He talked about good practices and good energy and how they're moving the ball and that's a sign of progress. They just can't score in the red zone. And, you know, he admitted that that's the problem. They got to score more points. And if you're having these long drives and taking up so much possession and you don't get any points or you only get three points out of it, that's not good enough. But there was kind of that undercurrent of, you know, if Will Levis doesn't get a pass batted down on the first drive or the receiver runs the right route on one of those other road zone opportunities, we're having a completely different conversation. But clearly 10 games into the season, those things happen, you know, more often than not at this point. And that's that's the issue. It's not a one thing goes differently. Everything's fine. It, it's just not at this point. So he did get asked about. Um, what his conversations with Mark Stoops since Saturday have been like, and he said they've been, you know, very candid as as always, and he appreciates that, and he appreciates Mark's defensive um, kind of outlook that he brings to those conversations. But you know, he said Mark's not happy, I'm not happy, nobody in the locker room's happy. We've got to score more points, and I think that's just kind of where they are right now. So you, you asked Mark at, right after the Vandy game about if you know, is a possibility of making a coordinator change or some kind of scheme change. He immediately answered no. I wrote about it for my column on Monday. I mean, Mark's going to have a decision to make whether you know. He obviously, he didn't make that de- decision. Where well, maybe he did. If he did, he hadn't told us uh, about what he's going to do after the season with Rich Gangarello. Uh, you know, do you, to me it's. You know, obviously the offense is not – the transition from Liam Cohen to Rich Gangarello has not gone like they had hoped. But on the other hand, if you get rid of Rich Gangarello, who has a three-year contract, you're going to have your fourth offensive coordinator uh, in four years. Um, I mean, what about that? I mean, what to me it's – I wouldn't say you're between a rock and a hard place, but it's going to be a tough call for Mark at the end of the year. Yeah, yeah I mean – I, at this point, I, I think I'd be surprised if he were back just because it's it's gotten so bad The the calendar really works against them at this point. I mean, we're three weeks out from when the transfer portal window opens. So you got to worry about keeping your freshman receivers and those young guys who have shown promise on the team. We're a month out from signing day. So you got to worry about attracting the next group of um, high school recruits then uh, keeping your current commitments. They've got a four-star wide receiver, another one from Nashville. Those guys in the fold, they're trying to close on a couple of offensive players here in the last month. Got to worry about that. And then, you know, obviously they have to find a new quarterback to replace Will Levis. And so there has been this kind of feeling all season that Rich King Rowe has a quarterback transfer out there, you know, lined up that they think they're going to get in the off season. 
But is that still the case when the offense has been this bad? Is is a, a an S, a legitimate SEC level starter going to come play for a team that has not scored twenty one point more than twenty one points in a game against an SEC opponent this year? I think that's all fair questions. And so, if for those reasons, as much as anything, it feels like you almost have to make a change to to tell those recruits and your current players and incoming transfers what the vision of the offense is. It it feels kind of similar to me. Just two years ago, when he fired Eddie Grant, I don't. I don't think Mark Stoops wanted to fire Eddie Grant. I mean, I think that he realized that there were a lot of things working against Eddie in those situations, and they basically made the best out of what they had. And in the same way, this year, Rich Kingarello didn't recruit these offensive linemen. I mean, it's not his fault that the the line has been so bad. He inherited that. Um, you know, the youth on offense was, was you know those guys are really talented, but they were going to make some mistakes that come with inexperience that was going to happen that's not his fault but you know at some point you just can't come back from it and i do think the fair criticism of him is he has not adapted his scheme enough to what they do have and played to their strengths he's stuck to this offense works and it's gonna we're gonna figure it out and that just hasn't played out so if i had to if i had to guess i think they make a change but it's not going to be an easy decision and if you didn't make the switch on sunday which so many people on twitter were calling for you do leave the door open. They've got two more games. I mean, maybe they, I mean, I don't think any of us believe there's any scenario where they beat Georgia, but what if they came out and scored, you know, 24 or something against Georgia this weekend and then comfortably beat Louisville in the finale, um, you know, that would maybe be enough momentum to say we've got this figured out. And if he really does have a quarterback lined up, we can go get a bunch of transfers and, and fix things quickly. So I think both scenarios are probably still on the table, but Given the way they've played so far, I think it's also unlikely that those these last two games are going to be dramatically different enough to, to change the narrative. What about uh, – it seemed to me on Monday uh, at Mark Stoops' press conference that he sort of indicated he's going to think about the scheme again, that yeah. it's not just the coordinator, but that he's going to – I think he said something that, you know, we're going to think that through or whatever. I mean, could we see him – you know, he went to this uh, pro-style scheme – uh, that's what he wanted when he hired Liam Cohen last year. Wanted more balanced offense, and the reason he picked Liam Cohen because he because of that uh, go, really goes back to Mike Shanahan, Mike Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan, uh, Sean McVay coaching tree, coaching philosophy of running the ball and passing off of play action and so forth. Scangarello with the Kyle. That's a, it's a little different than the way uh, Sean McVay and Liam Cohen ran it with the Rams. But it's still basically the same offense. It's an NFL-style offense. Do you see Mark saying, okay, after two years, okay, this doesn't work, didn't work, although it seemed to work last year, hasn't worked this year, we're going to go to something else? Or do you think he still wants to stick with this scheme but maybe a different play caller? Yeah, I think that to me is the more important question than even what he does with Scangarello. And, and I think that's the reason that making a change this week didn't make any sense because – the, the argument for making a quick change is so you can tell those recruits and your current players and everybody the offense is going to be different. But if you don't know what the offense is going to be, you're not going to have an answer for those players anyway. And they're not going to commit or sign on to stay or come in the transfer portal until they know what your offense is going to be. And so I think he's got to look at that, A, because it, it's possible, I think maybe even likely at this point, that they kind of struck gold with Liam Cohen in terms of he brought that NFL offense but he was also willing halfway through the season to say some of this isn't working and we've got to change. Like they abandoned the wide zone last year and went with what they, what they thought he did not run. Will Levis a ton in the first half of last season, 
but he realized that was one of Will's best tools, and they ran him a lot more in the second half. Obviously, that Louisville game ran for 100 yards, four touchdowns. That was huge. Rich Skinner really was never going to run Will Levis consistently this year. Obviously, he's hurt now, and it's kind of off the table anyway. But other than maybe one or two scrambles a game, they were just not going to have that as part of the offense. And so maybe Liam Cohen was just a perfect kind of blend of this scheme and willing to adapt to the college game. And if you if you stick with it, if you say we need another NFL guy, the calendar works against you there too because the NFL season you know still has another month and a half, two months, whatever it is. Those teams are not going to let them their their coaches out of their contracts in the middle of the season to come here. And you need somebody on campus, I think, in December to you know for signing day and all those other things to get this installed for spring practice. Remember when they hired Liam Cohen? He stuck with the Rams through the end of the playoffs that year. And was kind of doing both, you know, jobs from from L.A. And I don't think that's feasible. They got Scangarello because Cohen left so late in the spring. The NFL season was over, and so they were he was available to to jump when he did. I wonder if if he would if he does make a change if he considers a different scheme entirely. I mean, he's never going to abandon like a a balanced offense. He wants to you know control the clock and run the ball and those things. He's not going to go back to the Shannon Dawson air raid, throw it 60 times a game or whatever. But there are other college schemes out there who have balance that you look at and blend both things and are perfectly suited to the college game that maybe don't work in the NFL. And maybe that's that's what they go with something like that. Or maybe they go with, you know, just I don't think this is a guy they necessarily hire, but like a Derek Dooley type who has been a a college coordinator, run a successful offense at, at Missouri when he was there for two years has a lot of NFL experience, is doing the Nick Saban rehab project right now or whatever. I, I could see him going with like a, a former head coach who gets fired in this cycle or something like that. I think all options are probably on the table, and he's got to figure what he wants the offense to look like before he figures out if they're going to make a change. Because I think if they're sticking with this same offense, I don't know that a change makes sense. So that I think that's the first question he's got to, got to, got to ask. Yeah, and I, and I would argue that Cohen had some advantages that Scangarello yes. has not had. One being Wandale Robinson, uh, never you know second round pick in the draft, set a record last year for receptions and receiving yards at UK. Kentucky has some good young receivers, but I don't, they don't have a Wandale Robinson. And uh, Liam had two NFL draft picks on his offensive line, and Luke Fortner and Darian Kennard, and another guy in Rosenthal who was in an NFL camp. So. In Kentucky, they just haven't had that offensive line. But that's a lot of, you know, that that's the reality is the offense is just not performed this well this year. And especially in the red zones, they just haven't cashed in and scored points. So it'll be a tough decision for Mark. Uh, okay, let's let's. Uh, let's talk about a story that you wrote that it is up now on Kentucky.com, some, uh, where uh, kind of ties into what Will Levis said after the Vanderbilt loss about how they can, as he said, you know, he, he doesn't understand how they can get up for the games against big opponents, but they have struggle against t- uh, getting up for teams like South Carolina, who they lost to earlier in the year, although Will didn't play in that game, and Vanderbilt. Uh, what about that that kind of chip on your shoulder mentality compared to where this year Kentucky got what they wanted? They were a big second in the SEC East, and they haven't handled it that well. Yeah, to me, that's kind of the biggest question of the season. If if we're separating the offense here, like so much of Mark's success over the last ten years has been built on that 
Youngstown tough mentality, as they called it. You know, we're going to prove everybody wrong. You know, the JoJo Kemp, why not us? Why not Kentucky? All that. Every year you could go to SEC Media Days and write the same story that like everybody's picking against us and we're not getting any respect and we're going to prove people wrong. Well, that didn't happen this year. I mean, this was the year that they finally got that respect and picked them second in the East. They were ranked in the AP Top 25 preseason for the fifth time in program history. You know, everybody was it was picking them ahead of Tennessee, and we see it was the season that Tennessee ended up having, and they just haven't handled that well. I, I wonder if their edge is lost. I asked Mark about it Monday, and he said it was a fair question. He had that exact same conversation with one of their senior leaders and kind of brought up this idea of like a lot of their veterans who are on this team have scars. They've played through these kind of games before and, and learned those kind of lessons. And there's this big gap on the roster where they have a bunch of seniors and super seniors who are, are, big, are decent leaders, good leaders, but then they have all these freshmen and redshirt freshmen who have really never played in big games before, and those players haven't been through it. So he wondered if that was part of it, that they just weren't you know, prepared. They didn't have that, those scars to, to build on and, and see how that goes. I don't know if that's the answer. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But when Will Levis comes out after the Vanderbilt game and, and you ask him the logical question, What's next? How do you bounce back from this? Can you can you turn it around in time to play the number one team in the country? And he says, yeah, I have no no doubts that we're going to be ready for that and our energy is going to be there. It's that we can't have the energy for teams like Vanderbilt. That's frustrating. That speaks directly to that issue as a whole and on a you know one game kind of experiment. But I think it's the narrative of the season. And I guess in some ways the good news is that they're not going to have to deal with that for a while longer. The, the way this season played out has in my mind at least is going to reduce any chance that there's going to be a summer in the near future where people are predicting predicting Kentucky's going to you know challenge Georgia in the east or whatever it's going to go back to this is the same old Kentucky so they're going to be able to play that disrespect narrative again but if you want to take that step from where they have been the last four or five years to being a legitimate contender in the east challenging Georgia New Year's Six Bowls those things they got to figure out how to deal with with success and with praise and you know the rat poison as as Nick Saban calls it and I don't I don't think they've done that well this year. No, no, definitely not. I mean the record proves that out uh, uh, for this year. Okay, Georgia on Saturday. Uh, Georgia's a twenty two and a half point favorite, number one in the country, number one AP, number one college football uh, playoff rankings, defending national champions. Uh, as you said earlier, it's hard to see a scenario where Kentucky upsets Georgia, but how can they keep it close? How can they play Georgia competitive, you think? What are, what are the keys for Kentucky? I mean, it, it's it's probably that game plan that they've used to some success against Georgia in recent years where you you know control the clock and you do convert in the red zone when you get down there and limit Georgia's possessions. I mean, they've had some low-scoring games against Georgia where – there was never a point in the game where you thought Kentucky was going to win, but they at least kept it respectable. I guess that's on the table at least this week. I mean, if it's a bad weather, it's supposed to be cold in Lexington, but if it was snowing or something, that would probably help. They had that one rain game against Georgia where it was 14 to seven or whatever with Joey Gatewood at quarterback. So maybe they could, maybe they could play one of those this weekend, but you know, it's, it's impossible to imagine, imagine them winning. It's, it's really hard to imagine them even scoring at this point. So um, you probably need some defensive turnovers, maybe some defensive points, maybe a long Barry on Brown kick return, something like that to get going your way. And if you build some momentum early, who knows? But I'm not even sure what the crowd's going to be like in a cold game and, and Lexington to help you out there. So it's it's pretty ugly all the way around, I think. 
<laughs> yeah, the one thing they do have going for them, as you said, uh, like Levis, and I, I think Kentucky will be up for the game. Talking about the weather, I thought it was interesting last uh, – we are recording this on Thursday morning, Wednesday night, uh, when we were talking to J.J. Weaver. He was pretty blunt about when they – last week against Vanderbilt, it was cold. <laughs> the players were talking about that on the sidelines more than anything about how cold it was. So at one point yeah, they finally I, had to say, okay, it's cold, but we got to play football. But uh, you, you usually hear them, oh, yeah, the cold didn't bother me. Me. The way JJ talked, they were like, "Hey, man, it was cold last week." Yeah, I did notice that half in the second half, a bunch of those guys came back out in those huge parkas that they were wearing on the sideline, and so like it was pretty noticeable there. I mean, it was cold in Missouri the week before too. I guess it was yeah. at least sunny that day. Maybe that was the difference. But uh, JJ also said that the thing they they most had to play for is a better bowl game, so they can get somewhere warm. So yeah, right. Maybe that's, <laughs> so it's maybe that's on, on their, their mind. mind right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. So anyway, well, you don't get too many opportunities to play the number one team in the country. I'm sure Mark Stoops will point is will, has pointed that out, and we'll point that ag- out again when we talk to him again on Thursday. But uh, so it is an opportunity for Kentucky. We'll see how they fare against Georgia. Mark has never beaten Georgia. Uh, going into this game, I guess he's 0-9, 0-6, I think, against Kirby Smart. So, uh, like I said, it's a 3.30 start on C- on CBS. John, remind the listeners how they can follow you on Twitter. That's John Hale, J-O-N-H-A-L-E underscore H-L. And John's had plenty of coverage during the week. I have, have more, his including his predictions leading up to the game on Saturday. So check all of that out and his coverage during and after the game. John, as always, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, that'll do it for this edition of the John Clay Podcast. My thanks to Chip Towers of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and John Hale of Kentucky.com. Remember, go to Kentucky.com, hit on the subscription tab, check out all the offers for subscriptions, digital subscription to Kentucky.com or a print subscription to the Lexington Herald Leader. We appreciate everybody who supports our work at Kentucky.com and the Lexington Herald Leader. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at John Clay IV. Send me an email, jclay at herald-leader.com. Look for my three takeaways after the game on Saturday. Uh, as well as my live updates during the game. Both those you can find on my sidelines blog. Thanks again to Chip Towers. Thanks again to John Hale. And thanks again to everybody for listening. We'll catch you next time on the John Clay Podcast.